Hello, my name is Alyssa Mavison, and I'm a research associate at the Center for Early Education and Development. And today I'm delighted to be talking to Chris Johnson and Jess Hooper, who are both consultants and provide reflective consultation for child welfare workers and child welfare administrators. And uh, combined, they've worked in the child welfare field for decades. And today we're going to be talking about well-being and why that's so important for child welfare workers and what child welfare workers can um, think about in their own practices to help it be a more sustainable job. So welcome to the podcast. And I want to start out with my first question as just how do you define well-being when you're thinking about child welfare work? What does that concept mean to you in your work consulting with child welfare workers? Um, this is Chris. I would say for me, um, when I think about well-being, I think about um, mental, physical, and emotional health. So taking care of your body, taking care of your brain, taking care of your heart. Um, it's the capacity to manage challenges. And so it doesn't mean that it's not hard because it certainly is hard work, but the capacity, the skills, the practice, um, to take care of yourself um, through the hard stuff um, and cope with it so that you can show up the way that you want to show up. It's also about, I think, agencies having um, that um, care for workers as well and having so helping workers have a reasonable balance in their life so that they can be their whole selves, take care of their life outside of work and take care of it in work. Yeah, I, this is Jess. I agree with Chris. The thing for me that I really love to think about, though, is just the word by itself, right? Like well-being to me is your being as well. And so then you have to nurture many of the things Chris was saying, all pieces of you, both mind, body and spirit. And so you have to find ways within this work to have your being be well. And like Chris was saying about systems response to well-being, too, is your systems have to help beings be well in the work. Yeah, that's a really good point that it's it's really multidimensional from, you know, kind of your own like really personal coping strategies, relationships you have with people in the work, all the way up to like, how are the systems providing environments that people can be well in? That's really important to me. Like when we talk about um, self-care, um, that we are all responsible for taking care of ourselves and having self-care, but it's not fair to say, well, we're going to throw you in the deep end of tremendously challenging work. So uh, you better go to yoga and take care of yourself. You know, it's, it's that the agency needs to help you with it, too, and, and have a, a climate and a setting that makes it um, that sets you up to be able to do that self-care. Yeah, for sure. And so why do you think well-being is important specifically in the child welfare worker field? How does um, how does well-being in affect people's work when they're coming from like a place of, you know, healthy well-being versus low well-being? I think for me, when I think child welfare specific, the nature of the work is you will meet people in moments of stress. Nobody enters the system or touches the system. You don't have the honor of working with any family that's going to come in for any other reason than something very stressful is happening in their family. And so simply by nature, you are going to have to nurture your well-being through ways of knowing how you manage stress, how does it show up? Um, you know, you have to know all of those things around you because the nature of the work is stressful. And so nurturing your well-being in child welfare specific is knowing how to see stress without having to become it in every facet. Like we were talking about all of the dimensions, but it has to be really intentional practice 
really intentional system set up for people to be well in child welfare specifically. Yeah. And I think, you know, to add to that, like the work is stressful, you know, somebody's always mad at you. Either you're doing too much or you're not doing enough. And that's, that resonates with child welfare workers all the time. They always feel like no matter what I do, somebody feels like it's wrong. So just the stress of the work is hard. And I think also you, you are in constant proximity to trauma, you know, that, that, and we know that as child welfare workers, when you go out in the world and you talk to people about what you do, people react and go, Ooh, Oh, yuck. That's, that's gotta be so hard. You know, I, I used to say, it's like, I can bring conversation to a screeching halt if I tell people what my job is because they just are like, yuck, that's terrible. And it is, you know, it's things we don't like to think about. We don't want to, we don't like to think about children getting hurt. It is just, it is an insult to our brains. It's, it's not what we want to have happen in the world. And so there has to be some degree of acceptance that tragic things happen. And when you're close to tragic things happening, you just feel it. It just hurts. And so we've got to be able to take care of ourselves and have organizations that help us navigate just how just plain sad it is and painful it is to to know those things and witness those things. So the the combination of your your you're doing hard stuff and you're doing it fast and you're doing it without enough resources and you're witnessing awfulness um, and a lot of goodness too. It's not that it's just awful, but it's the, it's the awful stuff that sort of weighs, can weigh on your heart and make it hard to just, you know, get through the days of uh, another sad thing happened. And I watched another sad thing happen. And that's one of the things that can happen just in child welfare is just, you know, your worldview, you start to just think, you know, is everything tragic? Are people always hurting each other? And, and, and you forget, you know, that we have a, a glimpse on a, on a narrow window of the world that's really painful and sad. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of things. I, I really liked what you said, Jess, about how do you see stress without being stress? And I think that's, that's, it's, it's like a huge conundrum for, I don't know, the, the world in these helping professions. And then, um, Chris, yeah, I feel like, in a lot of these helping professions, I guess, but child welfare, it's kind of to the extreme that your everyday work is other people's like biggest life crisis. Like that Mm -hmm. is your daily work is dealing with people who are in like, you know, huge life crises. And so how, um, how do you like, right. Kind of adapt and and keep perspective with all of that. It, it reminds me of a, a situation that I dealt with that, that made it really real. And it, it's one of those situations that stayed with me for a long time that I was working with a 13 year old boy who was just in massive crisis and his family was in crisis. And it was, it was so tragic. I remember I had spent the whole week working with him. He needed to go to the psych hospital and it was a psych hospital that was kind of stark. It was, you know, it was fluorescent lights and it wasn't a lot of like, you know, it it wasn't a pretty place to take a 13 year old boy. And then I drove home from that. And then my 13 year old son had a birthday party that night. And I had these 13 year old boys all over my house playing football and laughing and joyful. And I just sat there and watched them. And it was like, I want to go back up and pick him up. I just want to go get that kid and he can just come to the party and he can sleep over 
And then I'll take him back to the psych hospital, which makes no sense. <laughs> it is not a thing we get to do. And it was like, it was so hard because it was hard for me to be present for my son's party because it was like, I remember, I remember so clearly standing in the yard and my throat just hurt. And it was like, just the weight of the week just hurt. And it was like, I couldn't, I wasn't fully present for the party because I was, I was with this boy that I had dealt with all week. And it, and I just spent the rest of the weekend just heavy about, about, what I had witnessed. And then, and then it's like, you guys want more brownies? You know, I just, it was so hard to, to switch, you know, gears and go back to my life that in that moment was privilege and joy. And it's, that can be really crazy making. And we're not the only field that does that, but that, that's one of those experiences that just sits with, sat with me for a long time about, um, kind of how crazy making it is to be with the tragedy and then go on with your life. It's like, I don't think there's probably a child welfare worker that doesn't have a situation where they can say, I know when I became the stress because I took it with me into other areas. And I remember living in a very unaware space of being a child protection worker, you know, brand new, wouldn't have picked it as a career, but fell in love with it once I got in it. Right. Like, it is truly an honor to get to meet people in this space and build relationships where they let you in, but it does bring stress into your life. And so you can become the stress that like that. And now for me, it's more of a gauge. Like when I become it, I know that my wellness is low. You know, I, I mean, I don't always see it in the moment, but that's one of my gauges. Cause like Chris, there's times where I became it and I would look at the world differently. You know, I had a caseload of teenagers for, years because that's the population I just loved working with. You know, it was like genuine chaos, Um, but they believed it. It wasn't like manipulative. It was like genuine, but there were times I'd see teenagers and I would, my brain would think every teenager has been sexually abused. Well, no, they haven't, but the ones I work with have. And so, you know, it was, I could see myself becoming this view of seeing the world in a certain way. So that was my I mean, thankfully, reflection found me at this moment. In my life. That was my way to have a gauge. Like when I start seeing the world in a certain way, my well-being is being impacted by this work. I have to, you know, get recentered. But there's not a child welfare worker that doesn't have many, many, multiple of those situations where you have become the stress of the work and it has influenced your kids' birthday parties like Chris or mm-hmm. bedtime routines or the way you let them go to friends or don't go to friends or if they get to ride their bike down the street alone or not. I mean, it, it really does show up everywhere. unique to child welfare. Yeah. And I think it's a really important point to that you guys are both mothers as you're doing this work. And a large portion of the population is kind of women, you know, in the age of having children. That's a lot of the people who do this work. And a lot of people have other caregiving responsibilities at home also for, you know, parents and other things, but a lot of people are doing this work as they're parenting their own young kids or, you know, kids of all ages. Yeah. The other part of that is that we were also all kids. So not only do we carry the the current stress, but we carry a life history with us. And um, there's research out there that when people are in the child welfare field, you know, that they don't come in with an ACE score of zero. You know, the ACEs study about the the traumas that people have experienced. You know, most of us bring in our own histories as well. Well, we all bring our own histories in. 
And so not only, you know, is it my 13 year old son, you know, and my 13 year old client, but I was a 13 year old. And so I can also hearken back to those days of, you know, something might trip me with this person reminds me of someone. I worked with a woman for a long time and I could not figure out why I was reacting to her. And it was finally like she was a nurse and my mom was a nurse. And it was like, she reminds me of my mom and not necessarily in a bad way, but I was just getting activated because it was like there was something about how she interacted with me that was that reminded me of my mom. So we've all got those things that we carry with us that if we're not paying attention, it it plays out for us in, in the work in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. And I would say directly impacts our well-being to be low without really any intention of it being low. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so like kind of going back to big picture, why is it so important for child welfare workers to have good well-being for interactions with like their actual clients and families? And how do you see that like relationship between your, the quality of your work and your own well-being? If I can go start up at system level, like mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you need the only tangible tool that systems have to do this really good work with families is the worker. I mean, there's literally nothing else that can carry out this practice except for the workers in these fields. And so systems must and should invest in well-being of their workers because we know that well workers equals well work, right? You know, when you know how you show up in your work, you're more likely to hear other people's stories accurately instead of through your own perceptions. Um, when you feel it's like, I'm not going to run a marathon the day that I am sick in bed with the flu. Just they, we have so many obvious metaphors that fit the same meaning of child welfare workers need to be emotionally, physically, and spiritually well to do this work well. And then families are better served. But I want to, I want people to see wellness needs to be nurtured from top down, like Chris was saying at the beginning when we talk self-care. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I would add to that too, um, that we know that this work is relational and we teach it to be relational. You know, I, I like how you said that, Justin, like we are, we are the vessel, you know, that, that, and we know that change happens in relationship and at the speed of relationship. And, there's something called liability that just it just sort of sits right here next to you and and it's and it whispers in your ear and sometimes it yells in your ear and it makes it hard not to be self-protective you know um there's the there's the fear that you're going to make a mistake i mean we 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 all live that way that nobody is comfortable in making mistakes or that fear that even if you don't feel like you made a mistake someone else might think that you did um, or the fear that you're going to be received in a way that you don't want to be received or per- perceived in a way you don't want to be perceived, or the fear that you could do everything you could for this family and they're still going to end with separation or something like that. So the, the pain of all of that, the, the, the fear that you're going to screw up or the fear that someone is going to think you're going to screw up or be blamed, um, the fear that it might not be enough, it is so painful to sit in that fear and it without a lot of support around you to say you are not in this by yourself and that's that's part of what the system does that you are not in this by yourself when you make a decision we are with you in that decision the agency's got you in that decision and we we'll, and we will back you and support you 
And to know that that if you're struggling, if you're afraid, that you're not in that by yourself either. And then to cope through that fear and still be present with the family. Because that to, to be in relationship with them and to really serve that family, they've got to be at the center of your work. And how can they be at the center of your work if you're afraid and, and protecting yourself? So somehow, I mean... When you say it out loud, it's like, how in the world do we do that? It is so hard. I mean, that is why we need so much agency support and, and to be able to take care of ourselves, to, to hold onto and manage through really big, tough emotions ourselves and the, our stress responses, what it does to your body, what it does to your life, your brain, your heart, so that you can keep the client centered in your work. Yeah, there's a the, a theme in my head is popping up as Chris is talking because she was talking earlier about how, you know, like people will say to you when you tell them what you do, like, oh, my gosh, I think if we're ever going to make workers most well in this work, we're going, it's going to be past agency level, right? It's going to have to go community collective level and people are going to also have to know they're responsible for child welfare, not just the people doing the work in the system, because that liability, I would say, you know, from experience was that which made the work the heaviest. It wasn't being in somebody's home with their family and struggle and crisis that made me feel unwell. It was often that feeling of liability of if I screw up, this is my fault because there's no collective ownership of families being well. And so that was definitely impactful on well-being of workers. Yeah. I never really thought about beyond the welfare system, right? How do we change mm -hmm. like that the whole entire system of how kind of the country and how we support families, all of that like goes down into the wellness mm -hmm. of the workforce. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's some, there's lessons in that too, about um, a sense of where kids are safest, you know, that sometimes because we worry about kids, we sometimes feel like, get that kid out of there. Like you've got to get them out of there because we, you know, th they deserve better than that or something like that. And, and that there's a sense of judgment that, that can come from the outside and, you know, workers feel that judgment, families feel that judgment. Um, but there's so much research that shows that kids have the best outcomes when they're with their families, as long as those families are safe or safe enough. And so that, that feeling of all of us wrapping around, not just the kids, but the families and saying, what do, what do these kids need? What do these parents need to be safe? You know, and that goes all the way to that foundational stuff about, do they have a place to live? Do they have their, their basic needs met and that kind of thing. And, and I know we're talking about worker well-being, but that is a piece of it is that feeling of, you know, someone comes to you and they don't have a place to live. And, it, you know, that impossible, unsolvable problem of what are we going to do? Um, you know, and that's, you know, us as a society wrapping around kids and families and saying, you know, we want you all to be well. Mm -hmm. When you take care of the people you care about. So collectively, you just need to shift that you care about everybody. Not I care about you, but not you or. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which trickles down to the worker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like we know from research that especially children activate a like really evolutionary response, you know, that like we mm -hmm. are biologically programmed to like, that's not okay. Right. We have mm -hmm. to keep kids safe. It's, it's really emotionally activating um, 
for all kind of humans. And you guys have done a lot of training, both of you. And when you think about this sort of like, you know, severe activation and all these stressful situations that child welfare workers are in, what do you think are the really kind of important building blocks of emotional well-being or like concepts and principles that you rely on when you're trying to get people to understand emotion in this type of work? To me, um, one of the game changers for me was um, the book, The Body Keeps the Score, because it, it illustrated so well that trauma lives in the body, stress lives in the body, emotions live in the body. And we also have an intellectual component to these things. But, um, you know, we've learned so much about the brain and how the brain works and, and what happens when we're in a stress or a trauma response that that it's the it's the the body that needs care too. that uh, example that I use all the time when we're talking to people about stress, stress and stressors. So like driving in bad weather, when you drive in bad weather, you know, you might have sweaty palms, you know, you can barely see past the tip of your car because snow or rain or whatever, you're sliding all over the road. And, you know, your heart is racing and your palms are sweating and your stomach hurts and your head hurts. And then you get home. It's not done. It's not over. You know, your body is still in stress. And you, I mean, you are safe. It's done. But intellectually, that doesn't matter because your body is not over the stress response. And so when you think about the chronic stress of this work, your body doesn't know when it's done. And so, you know, in some ways, that's been a hard lesson to learn myself. And it's been a hard lesson to teach other people that not only are you intellectually processing through this or emotionally processing through this, there is an element where you need to physically process through this. You have got to take care of your body. Breathing is most fundamental. If, if what I say to people is if you hear nothing else, take time to breathe. Real deep breathing, belly breathing, three to five minutes can change your well-being drastically. It really can. And there's good research behind that. If you do nothing else, breathe. Um, I started doing yoga and I thought I have, I didn't never, I never thought I'd be a yoga person. I mean, it's, it, it felt out there for me to, to be a yoga person. And I'm not saying I'm a great, a great at it, but it doesn't matter because I'm, I'm taking care of my body. And it's like, I honestly felt like there were days I felt like decades of work stress were like leaking out my fingers. Like I could just feel it come out of my body. And, um, my blood pressure is lower. My well-being is better because I'm taking care of myself physically. So that when we think of self-care, we always think of, in, in my agency, it's bringing in treats or getting a pedicure or going out to lunch. And there's a place for all of that. There's, there's a place for all of that. But well-rounded self-care is also body care. Um, it, it has to be. Mm -hmm. Sort of in this space, there's a power within supervision that I see too in um, just the uh, awareness of all of the things Chris is talking about, but also the awareness of, you know, the hyped up term of emotional intelligence, but really knowing how it's embodied in yourself and then helping the workforce you support also embody, you know, awareness of emotion space for them and then knowing what they are, knowing how to manage them. And then as, you know, kind of a group collective. Um, because it shows up in your workers, you know, like I think about sitting in a virtual meeting with a big group and somebody was snacking every single meeting 
And then I was doing individual and some, the person I was meeting with individually was just pissed that this person was eating the whole time. And I said, I'm more wondering, you know, based on the person who was snacking their recent stressful experiences, if it's a stress response, you know, could we look at it that way? And then they're like, oh no, I feel like the worst person. That's what it is. So it's sort of like this kind of compassionate curiosity also can is one of the things I think helps build people's space as a tool for sure in supervision, but also just within the workforce with each other um, that kind of breeds well-being and, you know, or at least pockets of awareness of others' well-being might be low or might be high. And it was just one of those things that would have appeared otherwise very annoying to many people, but also was just a clear sign of emotional well-being being low. So it shows up everywhere, but supervision to me is one of the places I think if you know the people that you work with and supervise, you can see some of these things um, differently than if you were to not invest in knowing them too. Mm-hmm. I, I I really like that because the, the other part of, of supervision is being able to talk through what is going on with you right now, you know, um, having... Um, reflective capacity. I mean, you know, we're all champions of reflective consultation, but um, it's so important, you know, that that ability to take a step back and go, what is going on with me right now? You know, the person that I reacted to who was reminding me of my mom or the 13 year old boy and, and, you know, the, that I was reacting to myself were just like the, the awareness, you know, the mindfulness of I am stressed right now. And um, so that reflective capacity, just time and space to think about what is going on with you right now. I came to that late in my career. I used to come home from work and it was like I would come home and I would change out of my work clothes. And then it was just like all of a sudden it was like my head hurts. And then it was like my stomach hurts and I'd feel myself, my shoulders would just kind of drop. And it's like, well, my shoulders up all day or like, am I clenching my jaw? And I was not attuned to it until I got out of the setting. And so having that, that attunement. So like the, the mindfulness of just awareness, what is happening to me right now in this moment and what do I need? And, you know, supervisors can do that with you. Coworkers can do that with you. How are you, managing what's happening to you right now. Um, When I think about building blocks too, you know, we talk about reflective consultation, but also just reflection, um, like in the reflective consultation space, but just even reflection um, in the, in the daily work, you know, we got into a practice when I was a supervisor of trying to stop for a second, just pause for a minute. There's so much power in the pause, you know, Um, pausing when a really intense report came in. And I remember, you know, like, for example, a a baby has an injury. Well, uh, the human reaction to a baby being injured is to just feel it, to be upset, you know, like it makes your knees weak sometimes. It's like, you know, you can say baby has a skull fracture and you just kind of shudder. And to just leave five minutes of space when you're in your consultation to go, you guys, this is a hard case. So we're, we're going to talk through um, the report. And then I don't know about you, but I need a minute to just go, oof, this is really hard. This is really sad. 
And you can see it in the room. You know, the more we did that with the staff I supervised, you know, the, the more we made room for emotion, the more they could say, yeah, this is really tough. You know, we had, we had several people who had little kids and they would just sort of hurt. You know, you could see it in their faces. And then there's this thing that happens where um, you sort of help each other regulate and process through it. And you kind of do this, this breath and this sigh. And I, I remember one time in, in consult, we had had a case with a baby and we had a, a mom who was just back from maternity leave. And she was definitely teary when she read it. And she was like, you guys, I'm okay. I just, I'm a crier. I just need to get it out. And she ended up taking the case and did really well. But she was super mindful of where she was reacting. And every time after she had an interaction in person with this baby, she would say, I drove for 15 minutes before I came back. Or she'd come sit in my office and just kind of need to let it out and breathe it out a little bit. And a couple times she was teary. and um, But she was also mindful of it, got through it, and was did great work with this family. So part of the building block to me is making space for reflection and making space for emotion because it's real. And if we don't make space for it, it's not like it's not there. Yeah, that was some really good examples of opportunities for something I've heard called co-regulation. So in the Western culture, like we so think that like, you know, little kids need help regulating, but then, you know, but you should develop self-regulation and then you're like on your own and you can do it yourself. Um, but that really isn't how humans work very well, that adults use co-regulation all the time, that to have those connections with people who are able to just like be with you and, and feel with you. And whether that's people at your work or at home, I think it's worth naming that, um, all humans regulate using relationships. And it's a really important resource for us to manage our own emotions. It's curious to me with that, how quickly teenagers get overlooked in by the world, you know, maybe not maybe specific <laughs> welfare, but their need for co-regulation shows up in such a way that is so hard for people, even workers, you know, their well-being can be impacted by how a teenager shows up needing co-regulation, <laughs> but their brains aren't that far removed from a baby, mm-hmm. you know, really. In the scheme of a life expectancy, it's closer to a two-year-old, a 13-year-old's closer to a two-year-old than a 35-year-old, you know, where they, so it's super curious how we know it, like when we think about it, we know co-regulation is needed in for every person, but there's these pockets of people that sort of get overlooked because of how they need it. Yeah, the, the the bigness of it, you know, that that teenagers, you know, if they're dramatic somehow that they, you know, that the response can be, oh, settle down. It's not that big a deal where it's like it is in that for that person in that moment. It is a big deal. And I we have a, a worker in our um, in my agency who used to say, you know, she used to take do intake and she was so good about for this person, for this caller in this moment, this is huge. And I can, in my, my chair, it doesn't sound that huge, but for them, it's, it's huge. And so I need to validate for them what that is and how big it is. But I also think about what does it look like if we're not co-regulating and instead we are escalating together. And that is also very real in a room, you know, that, that, um, you know, that 
sense of anger when you see that kids are hurt or um, that feeling of a worker gets kind of um, picked on in court or really picked apart in court. And, and the impulse is to rally around that worker and you sort of get righteous anger on their behalf. And then everybody gets more and more mad and then we're all mad together and nobody's regulating in that moment. And so like that climate can happen and it can be really well-intentioned that you want to rally on behalf of the worker or rally on behalf of that kid. But when we're amped up, we're not thinking at our best. And so that's another way that, that, that well-being that there's a place for that emotion. There is, but then there's also a place for, okay, I got to let this go. I, I need to practice some acceptance or I need to acknowledge my grief about this. And that was really, back to the 13-year-old, that was really what it was for me was grief. I was just so sad that that had happened. And I had to, you know, it wasn't going to be productive for me to be perpetually angry about it. I needed to just sort of mourn and be sad for him. Um, and making room for those emotions so then we can move on. Um, I, I know a supervisor who talks a lot about acceptance, you know, and acceptance that sad and tragic things happen in the world. And if we're fighting against it, we're stuck in fight and we're not moving on to figure out, okay, what's, what's next after the anger or the sadness or frustration about that. Yeah. So that's a, a really good point about just sort of like the whole agency or, you know, group of colleagues can have a culture of being regulating or being angry or like, you know, and, and we know that child welfare workers have a really high rate of burnout and turnover. And so tying that back to this piece of what do you think agencies can do to build a culture that is more sustainable and promotes well-being for these child welfare workers um, dealing with all these things we've just been talking about? I think for me, it's, you know, I, and I don't know how this is done, but it's the, just like Chris was talking about, it's agencies systems have to have space for being. If you can't be in whatever you are in, then you can't be well, right? Like if you don't have space to actually be, you can't actually have well-being. I mean, truly like a pun on words, but you can't. And so our brains by nature are anticipating what's next. And child protection is a never ending system of next never goes away. There's, they just keep coming and coming and coming. And so if there isn't being space built in to the system for people to slow down with skilled, you know, leaders that know how to model and practice and build it around the workers. Um, I mean, that's, what's needed is that has to happen within the systems for people to be most well. Um, I mean, for me, that's what I see the need of. And I would add to that, um, yeah, I I like how you said all that just just about space in in the work, and that is a intentional agency practice because the pace is so fast that if we don't pause, um, we're not gonna we're not gonna make time for it unless it's it, it's it's got to come from top down. You know that that we can we can talk to workers about their self care and and that is a piece of it, but without really explicit permission for that self-care, um, it, there's not going to be room for it to happen, or it's unlikely to have room for it to happen. Um, the, the other thing I think about is um, agencies that care for their staff as people, um, you know, policies in place that 
I don't know anybody who's not, you know, taking care of family members, kids, pets, farms, businesses, and themselves. <laughs> you know, that there is a, we all have lives outside of work and we need to be seen as whole people with whole lives around work. So really strong policies about leave, about sick time, about um, care for yourself, um, a culture that that builds in, you, you know, we, we talk about employee assistance, we need employee assistance. We also need time and space to go for a walk at lunchtime. And, and the culture that says, you know, that we, we don't want to have a culture that's like, rewards, never taking breaks, or never taking vacation, or I worked late and I worked all weekend. And then if we are, you know, giving pats on the back for perpetually doing that, um, we're not supporting well-being. I mean, we all know that in child welfare, you there are days that you're going to work more hours or you're going to work those off hours or nights or weekends, but nobody is made to do that long term. Nobody. And so if we don't have a culture that says, nope, turn it off, or I'm taking the on-call phone from you, or um, I, I got your caseload right now. Um, I remember a time that I was in real burnout and I was in, I, it was about five years after I started the job and, um, you know, burnout has some real specific hallmarks of like that emotional exhaustion and cynicism and that sense that nothing you do works. And I remember so clearly standing in my supervisor's doorway going, nothing ever helps. Nobody ever gets better. It, this doesn't work. I don't know why we think this works. This doesn't work. And she said, you need to go home. Um, I want you to go home. I want you to, to get your schedule to me. And I want you to, put, <laughs> this was back when we had paper files, you know, get me your files that are going to need care this week. And I want you to go home. And I want you to put your feet up and relax and not think about this. Because if you're feeling that overwhelmed that nothing ever works, you're pretty fried right now. And let's get you through this. And so I remember going home and it was like, what am I supposed to do? I, I, I had two little kids. And so they were at daycare because I thought I was working that day. I remember just walking around my house like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do right now. And then I was like, I finally was like, I went to the Y and I went for a walk. And it took a couple of days for me to recognize how, like just said before, I was the stress at that point. I, I could not see past just sort of drowning in the work. And then I went, it got better and better through the weekend. It was like a Thursday. And it's like, I remember this really clearly. This was a long time ago, but it was a Thursday. I went home on Thursday, stayed home on Friday all weekend. I went in on Monday and she was like, okay, I think we needed to pass a couple of these cases off. And, and that was a time I, I moved from investigation to ongoing case management because I realized the unpredictability of the schedule did not work with my personality or with my life. Um, I had two little kids and every time I couldn't pick them up on time from daycare, I was just in knots. And so ongoing case management has a more predictable schedule, not always, but it allowed me to make some changes and it, and it allowed me to come back and, and process through that period of pretty intense burnout. And that was a supervisor being available, seeing um, what that was. And then making changes so that the work fit better in my life. And if I wouldn't have had that, I would have been out. I, it, I was, you know, that was 
20 years ago. <laughs> and I, I, I wouldn't have lasted in the field if I didn't have that outside help getting me through what that was at that time. Yeah. It's the strong policies, but strong practice. Like it is, mm-hmm. you have to, your supervisors need to know this of your, you have to see here and know your workers. I mean, you have to invest in that. You know, I hear from supervisors a lot and they'll say, I'm not their therapist. And I, and I will often challenge that. Like you are right. You are not their therapist, but you can provide therapeutic settings for somebody you supervise. I'm not telling you to tell them if they have a diagnosis and I'm not telling you to provide CBT, but you can sit with them in feelings. If they're getting divorced or their mom died, they are worthy of you sitting in that space with them and feel letting them feel it because it's coming into the work. And so you have to have practices built where that is there. Cause you know, when they say I'm not their therapist, I will say, you're not their doctor either. If somebody has a cancer diagnosis, but you will sit with them and how heavy that feels with the person. You don't have to be their therapist. My best friend doesn't have to be my therapist, but she provides experiences just by simply being together. And so it has to be, you know, like well-being based practices and policies have to be system built. And then like we were talking about earlier, culturally held. I mean, it is much bigger. Mm -hmm. And a culture where emotion is acceptable, like we're allowed to have emotion. And I worry about child protection settings and it's not everybody, but there's, there can be this belief within child protection that if you're having emotion, that you're either like too close to it, too connected, or you don't have good boundaries. And it's like, so that the emotion happens in therapy or you take your emotion to emergency or uh, employee assistance and then come back without it. And it's like, that is just not the way humans are. We have emotion. And if we don't make space for it, it'll find its way out <laughs> one way or another, or it'll burrow its way into us. And then we burn out. Yeah. So permission to be a whole human while you're at work, who has a whole life and who has a, a history and, you know, right. All the things that you're coming with and for that whole person to be welcome at work and seen at work, that does seem like really foundational to the whole well-being thing that we've been talking about. Um, and this is kind of opening the floodgates and COVID. So COVID has happened and COVID happened and it just kept happening and it's been so long. And so you guys have continued, you know, kind of doing your work through all this. So yeah, we can't get into this for too long, but just kind of generally, how do you see COVID impacting this? And more important, maybe as where we are now, how can we move forward? How can we move forward with hope and, and, and make sure that we're not kind of stuck in this COVID rut of, of everyone being less well all the time? For me, I see we need the radical acceptance that we have disconnected our collective we, you know, we as a group, as a team, as a system, COVID has disconnected us simply by physically disconnecting us. And we are, we need to belong in group spaces and we can build this in hybrid, but you have to see that you have disconnected that we by the nature of the world, and you have to intentionally facilitate reconnecting as a collective we. If there are new people that started during COVID, you do not know them the same that you knew people that physically started in your building. And so there's not a luxury to not go figure out who they are and make time to get to know them. And then they weren't part of your team that has physically shared space. So you're going to have to bridge all of these gaps with awareness that they were ruptured because of COVID. And so now intentionally rebuilding this collective nature of these child welfare teams, because workers aren't well when they're disconnected from each other. And 
if they're not well, their work isn't well. So, I mean, there's lots of reasons why you need to radically accept that we have become disconnected due to this pandemic and now invest in reconnection. And, and when you're in a, a telecommuting environment or a hybrid environment or something like that, most of us haven't done that before. There are some workplaces that have existed that way, but most of us haven't done that before in the long term. And, you know, the, the pandemic required separation, but human beings require connection. Like social connection is a protective factor a lot across almost every social issue there is. Social connection reduces, um, you know, juvenile delinquency, mental health, ch- uh, child abuse, you know, um, increases school success. Like social connection is the thing. People who have more social connections live longer. And if you if you talk to people about why they stay in jobs, one of the main reasons they stay in jobs is because of their coworkers. And so we have a new way of being. If if you're in an agency that has hybrid work or that you don't you no longer have the meeting room and staff meetings the way they used to look, you no longer have casual conversation that happens at other people's offices or cubes, you don't have the, the natural things that happen at lunch or, or that kind of thing, then there is a that that rupture of relationship will continue. And so that is an agency intentionally, planfully figuring out how we exist in connection to each other. It, it, it won't happen without intentionality. And people are building, like, I keep seeing like virtual water coolers. You know, I don't know what that is, but it's like a, like a platform where people chat with each other. And some people can get really fed by that, 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 that works for them. Some people it's gotta be in person. Some people it's gotta be phone calls. Um, our work is so relational that my bias on this is that even telecommuting work environments must have in-person connections sometimes. What that looks like, how they do it, we, I personally don't see that we can continue to be relational in our work if we're not relational with each other. And part of being relational with each other, a piece of that is in-person connection that, um, I heard a, a there's a, a male researcher who talks about who, who does research on longevity, and he talked about our brains release different chemicals when we're in in the room together. You know that that handshakes release oxytocin, and I don't know if we're gonna ever shake hands again the same way we used to. But being in in proximity to each other is not the same as a screen. So lots of benefits about you know having more work life balance. Great, um, you know less commuting. Great. Um, better options for childcare and and that kind of thing. Great. The loss of relationship is a huge cost that we have got to figure out how to put together in in a new environment really planfully and intentionally or our work. I really believe our work is going to suffer. Yeah. Every time I talk to you guys, I feel like I get so energized around this of like, you know, worker, like these people are doing work that is so crucial for health of children and families, and they deserve to be seen as emotional humans. And, and, you know, how can we really make systems that lift that up and, and make a space for this work that can be done in a, in a healthy, well, sustainable way so that these children and families who are in crisis have a support that they can, that is supportive, you know, that, right, that we build a whole system of support where everyone is more supported and that would really change, I think, 
some of the really hard struggles of, of this mm-hmm. work. Agreed. So, yeah. Um, do either of you have anything else you want to share or just kind of main takeaways? Like what do you want people in the child welfare field to know about well-being? And we've talked about this systematically. And so I also think we can think about, you know, policymakers and administrators and child welfare workers, like across the system, like what do we think is really important for people to understand about well-being in the child welfare field? I'm going to say something super simple, but I mean it with like a lot behind it. To any child welfare worker, you deserve and are worthy to be well. So you deserve to be a well-being and have your well-being nurtured within your work, outside of your work. Um, but you deserve and are worthy of being well. Yeah. Um, and I think take care of your body, take care of your brain, take care of your heart. And at every level in the organization, do the same. That your, your board, your directors, your administrators, your supervisors, your staff, and then your clients. You know, the parallel process is real. The way we, the way we treat our, our staff and our administration is how they treat the supervisors, is how they treat the staff, is how they treat the families. And so um, giving care, um, you know, having true, genuine care for people as people um, at every level of the system. And that starts with true and genuine care for ourselves, compassion for ourselves, time and space for ourselves to be well um, at every level of the system, I think will help us do better work. Thank you so much for talking with me today. And I, I hope that people can hear this conversation and, and just bring a little bit with them, you know, into their work, into their, into their agencies of let's support each other in being more well. Thanks, Alyssa. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Early Development and Child Welfare podcast series. This podcast was supported in part by the Minnesota Department of Human Service Children and Family Services Division.